It is um, really great to hear. A couple disclaimers. Uh, the church we planted here in Kelowna, uh, together with a team of people, um, in which there's a few people here actually, uh, in 86, was actually for the first five years a Baptist church. So like wrap your head around that one. So that's something you got to like get clear. And uh, secondly, uh, I don't think it's 200. It's probably more, I don't know, like four Somewhere in between there. I just don't want to exaggerate. And my, my wife's not here, so she would be like making sure I was. But um, we've been involved with church planting uh, in a lot of different settings, cultural settings and stuff. Uh, so maybe the spinoff is, it's up there. But I think too, that just sounds like too many. Is that okay to clarify that? It just doesn't feel right. So um, it's great to be here. Uh, Chad used this word, partnership. I think something... Uh, that we're all trying to learn and get better at and explore is what unity really feels like and smells like and looks like uh, for the followers of Jesus. I think I'm starting to just really realize, I think in its simplest form and maybe the safest form is just we just learn to cheer each other on in whatever we're doing for God. Does that sound like a good thing? Um, and there will be those moments of convergence and synergy. And, of course, if, G- if Jesus is really over this whole thing, he's going to find some pretty innovative and creative ways to help us uh, linking arms. But I think it's not, it's not as public sometimes as we think it, it is. And it's, it's about this kind of thing. And it's just really, really great to be here. I'm really excited about the... Uh, the series that you're that you're working through this this whole exploration of abundant life, uh, kind of using the words of Jesus in John Chan, ten as a as a launching pad into what does it mean when we get touched by Jesus? Some of you in this room have followed Jesus probably for a very good long time, and we all know the ups and downs of that that journey. Some of you might be here in an absolute fresh headspace of reflection. Maybe you know somebody here, or maybe you just saw the house online, or you heard there's this, this uh, the way I found you was everybody goes, oh, that's the guy's like right next to the guy who sells hoses. So that's kind of, not that you're the hoser part of the church of Kelowna. I'm not, I'm not saying that, but that's kind of how people, is. I'm not sure if you heard from Al's hoses and you got here. Um, but for some of you, Jesus might just be, uh, barely even a reality. Maybe you're still exploring if, if he even really was on this earth at all. And then, of course, it's a whole other journey into discovery uh, to come to a belief that, that he's the son of God and that he opens a pathway of eternity in front of us and behind us and shoulders us and shields us and calls our lives into a trajectory that actually has eternal significance and not just us lasting but the things that our hands touch and our the things we care about the things that we engage with in the environment and with other people and in our society and in our culture all these things actually have eternal significance so I love this thing of abundant life at least my understanding is you guys are kind of thinking about wrestling with maybe adjusting some of your lives wherever you're at sort of in your journey of of the rhythms of rest and service and all those things but trying to go okay if I've, I've touched so much of Jesus what's it look like for this to start spilling out of me 
What are the things I should kind of be being aware of? I think you guys talked about forgiveness. Like, that's like, a, that's huge, isn't it? How many of your cages got rattled when you talked about this whole concept of forgiveness and Ed's drilling you right down into sort of the nitty gritties of what it means to be so full of the abundant life of Jesus that you can actually extend grace to other people when they don't deserve it. That's pretty, pretty crazy stuff to think about. I know you've been exploring a lot of things. So I was invited to come into this mix today and do some reflection on what does it mean for the poor, for the marginalized, for those that are suffering some measure of oppression. Sometimes we think that that's way outside of the realm of the church, uh, but it can be right in our own midst. What's it look like for you in high school to be standing in the midst of a class and there's a few kids that are on the margin? What's it look like for you in the workplace to be moving up maybe in your career or you're getting some sense of advancement or you've just lost your job or whatever. What's it look like to be pushed to the edges or to be standing in a place of favor and looking outside of your blessing and your abundance and who you are in your life and in God and all the good things that have happened. What's it look like to, to see some of that spill out to the margins of your comfort zone, to the margins of who you would consider be different than yourself? Does that kind of make sense? I think one of the great challenges of, of being called as followers of Jesus in Kelowna, it's changing significantly. First time we left the city was 1991, so it's radically different now. But it still is a fairly kind of white bread, upper middle class, kind of, you know, get yourself together, kind of, you know, kind of moving out in that foray. What does it look like to have the abundant life of Jesus touching us in all those awesome areas of life, but should it be spilling somewhere else? Should it be engaging outside of our own need and our own uh, comfort zone, which is not a bad thing. One thing is not pit against the other, but how do they bleed into each other? Does that kind of make sense? And it was so strange because I was sitting back here uh, with Chad and we were chatting about this. And I, you know, I got all these go-to texts and I sort of got these regular places that you kind of think. You're thinking about the poor. You're thinking about the marginalized. You're thinking about issues of social justice. You're thinking across that whole spectrum of theology and, and philosophy and practical living. And all of a sudden, John 15, I just couldn't get it out of the front of my thought process. And it's a crazy little verse. It actually is very connected to John chapter 10 because it's just this sort of cascading flow of thoughts that are spilling out of Jesus uh, towards his disciples and those that would follow him. And I really believe, and I think most of you in this room too, too, is that the words of Christ almost 2,000 years ago have just as much significance for me today. i got to figure out what it looks like. I'm in a totally different context. I'm living in Canada. I'm in Kelowna. What does this all look like here but the words that Jesus speaks don't just have power to change the way I think. They actually have the power to shape the way that my life looks. And it was so crazy because I go to John chapter 15. Not sort of a typical go-to text if you're thinking about marginalization, justice, the poor, these sorts of things. But kind of hang on for the ride here. See if you end up with some of the same conclusions that I am. So Jesus says this in John 15, verse 12 to 15. My command is this. Now, that's clumsy language, especially if, you, if you've grown up in the church. That thing can make you break out in hives. That, that word just is like, it's like a loaded grenade. It's like a minefield of all sorts of triggers. But just kind of dial down, look into the eyes of Christ, know who's speaking this right now, and just kind of let these words maybe grip your imagination in a new and fresh way. He says, my command is this, 
Love each other as I have loved you. Now, if Jesus had a business card, maybe, I don't think he did, but maybe it would have said something like, mess with your mind ministries international or something. I don't, I don't know. He's kind of, because he's always pulling these things out of, I don't know where he gets them. Scriptures would indicate that he gets it from the Holy Spirit and, and by hanging out with God the Father. There's these, these sort of concepts and worldviews and things that spill out of Jesus. In fact, we know in Colossians chapter 1 and other places, Hebrews is like another great go-to book of the New Testament, that Jesus is the actual reflection, more than reflection, he's actually God fleshed out. To walk, if, if, you know, one of my favorite old songs, if God were one of us, just be a slob on the bus, you know, kind of thing. Well, that's Jesus. He's, he's, he is God among us, but not just in this sort of esoteric, rabbinical, sort of guru, God-man kind of a way, but truly in the deepest essence of what the incarnation means, he embraced and drank deeply of everything it means to be human, even to the point of death. It's amazing. And so in his journey of faith, in his following of the Father in this same gospel text we see in John 5, Jesus would only do things as a response to what he saw the Father doing. That wasn't just outside observation. It was as I'm encountering people and I'm living life, there's things about the Father that got lost in Jewish history. There's things about the Father that got lost in all the crazy interpretations of the Old Testament. It's like nuts, Netflix, like one of the greatest blessings and cursings on the planet, right? So I'm locked in a Netflix, you know, sort of run a couple days ago, and I land on this crazy little thing about how the Irish were treated in English society, like way back. I mean, we know it's still full of contention and all sorts of craziness, but I couldn't believe there was this one instance in English history where James I, who translated the King James Bible into English, got this crazy idea in his head that the Irish were savages, were uncivilized people, and they crawled off onto this island up the coast, up a little bit north of, of Ireland, where there were women and children that were in hiding from fear of, of, the, of the English coming in and taking over their land. And I mean, without going in, you know, we keep this at some sort of a PG-13 or something level, but he slaughtered everybody. What was his lens of thinking? It was Old Testament texts. So already at the time of Jesus, and we've wrestled with this ever since, Jesus is coming and saying, no, no, there's, there's things you're completely misinterpreting here. There's things about God that were to reflect him as the Father, and so I must come now and flesh this whole thing out. Because it keeps getting hijacked by your brokenness and by your disease and by your jealousies and by your envy. It, it, it just, it's just getting all jumped and jumbled up. So the level of the brokenness of the human condition was significant. It was, it was deep. There was something in the redemptive work of the cross of Jesus Christ and his resurrection that, that set, reboots this whole thing and sets it on the right tra trajectory. But it was happening before the cross as well as after the cross. And Jesus is grabbing on to the heart of the Father and he's trying to give articulation to the wooings and the invitation of the Holy Spirit to become a different people. 
to bring a miracle on the earth that the Israeli nation never pulled off. And it was to be a community of justice and faith and love and hope. I mean, honestly, it's just like your vision statement. Let's be a safe place that's passionate. Let's be safe enough that we can wrestle out our, our stuff, but let's also be passionate enough that we're not satisfied to just stay where we are. And this is the heart of Jesus. And so it's out of this posture of articulation and this perspective of calling forward his disciples to be a shining light in the midst of a dark world, and he says, greater love has no one than this. I can just hear it coming, right? First few times I read this text, it's going to be like, it's going to be some like amazing sacrificial kind of lay down my life for the people I just think suck. Like that's got to be the text. Like that's got to be the real Greek, right? Or it's got to be, you know, people that I just can't stand. No greater love is there than I would just hang in there with this obnoxious neighbor or, or this rude relative or these strange immigrants, or these people that are, that are messing up my world and coming in and they're turning the economy up. If I could just, I'll just, no greater love, I'll just kind of suck it up. But Jesus puts it in a completely different package. He says, greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's, say it. What is that? What is that? Now, we've got sort of this jacked-up junior high world here in North America as well. It's not talking about becoming best friends with everybody. There's a posture. There's a, there's a way that you see others. There's a way that you are impacted by the abundant life of Christ that actually changes you. So Jesus describes a little bit of what friendship is. We won't drill down into all of it, but there'll be a few applications here. You are my friends... If you do what I command. I no longer call you servants. So I love about this place. I love the, the tenacity and the relentless pursuit of being a safe community. Jesus doesn't build a house of slaves. He doesn't build a house of religious bondage. He himself does not call you his servant. What does he call you? I call you friends. A servant doesn't know his master's business. Instead, here it is, I have called you friends. For everything that I have learned from my father, I have made known to you. Just for grins, let's read this text together. It's right there. You say it with me. My Now, if we were in a different context, maybe I'd just get you to, you know, shout out or say some things that just kind of jump off the text, that just kind of like pop to your brain. Here's a few things that happen to me as I think about this. The first thing is this. When we're thinking about the power of friendship, especially as Jesus describes it, the first thing that we see is there's no more obligation. 
So when Chad is standing up here giving you an invitation uh, as a leader in the community to step forward, we need help with the kids or we need help with that. Again, isn't there something, you know, your, your, your terror of the offering basket is because there's a fear of obligation. There's, there's been something that's been woven deep into the fabric of some of North American Christianity that has been manipulative and has been coercive and it's sort of been, you know, give this whole this money thing. We're, we're terrified of it, aren't we? I mean, you, you are. I'm just, observe, I'm just a friend. I, I leave tomorrow. I mean, I live down the road, but I won't give you my address. But it's like, <laughs> there's something about this, this uh, an essence, to use house language, a culture of obligation that burns people out, that drives you into the ground. So Jesus is saying there's something about this posture of friendship that obliterates the exhaustion and the paralyzing effect of obligation. You'll end up doing what I command, but you will do what I command out of a spirit of friendship. Not just your friendship for me, but here's the kicker and here's the whole upside down metric of the leadership of Jesus Christ. It's completely on its head and he is our friend. Now we don't lose the sense of royalty, of majesty, of you know, that sort of thing. It, it, you know, it's, it's all intact. But it's a posture, another, another biblical word for this that allows friendship to happen and we can't talk about it a lot this morning is meekness which is different than humility, and it's not being a doormat. There's something about a gracious spirit that holds back. It's called restraint. Even though I have more money than you, or I have more power than you, or I have more influence than you, or I have a bigger title than you, or if I, if I have more profile than you, or if I'm more educated than you, or on and on it can go. What does it say in Philippians 2 of Jesus? He emptied himself of all that kind of identification, and he just became a friend, a servant. And there's no more hierarchy. I mean, we've just described that. I don't call you, I mean, this, this is powerful. And think about this third thought for a second. There's no more secrets. Everything the Father shows to me, Jesus says, I will show to you. That's, the, that's, that's how friends live and work together. Now, it doesn't mean you're always going to understand everything. It doesn't mean you don't have to grow and mature and there's tracks of, of discipleship and training and some people have more experience and wisdom than others and it's super helpful for us to share our experiences. Some people have given a huge chunks of their life an academic space in their brain to drill down into the biblical text. It's okay to be listening to people like that, but they don't have the only opinion in the room. And someone could walk in and not even know Jesus yet and something be revealed to them that just pops out of the biblical text. You go, what? How did you even, how did you figure that out? That's like life-changing. So there's no hierarchy and there's no secrets there's no more gifted or anointed. There's no elite crack team in the church. It just doesn't exist, at least the church of Jesus Christ. It, it's no, you can't find it in the biblical text anywhere. And religious systems in particular that are driven by secrecy. Well, if you, you, you can't know what's happening in this room or this space because you're just not quite good enough yet or you're not gifted. You know, you know that feeling? Now, do you need to know everything that's going on everywhere? No, but that's called trust. 
And if there's no trust, what you are left with is systems and rules and regulations and secrets. There's no more obligation. That kind of gets purged out of the faith community. There's no more need for hierarchy. Is there recognition of gifting and a celebration of, of people that are called into ministry? I mean, you guys have just figured this out as a community, right? Okay, Evangel, that's been good. Great season. We're part of this Pentecostal assemblies, and some of you don't even know what I'm talking about, which is a very cool thing. It's like, you know, just this whole mix of every, what are the next steps for us as a community? It's okay to sort that kind of stuff out, but the posture is different. Now, because you've, you know, filled two things, and in the fall, you're thinking of a third service and all that, does that make you better than the house church that's down the road? I don't think so, and if you end up there, you might be in trouble in 10 years. You're just following Jesus. And if your yes to Jesus looks like the house being, you know, this sort of amazing place on the landscape of the Kelowna Church, I'm the first one in the front row celebrating and cheering that. But it's out of the posture of friendship. There's no more obligation, no more hierarchy, no more secrets. Greater love has no one than this, than to... Lay down one's life for one's friends. That's what Jesus says here, right? What is that? I kind of had this crazy thing happen to me some years ago. We lived in the north end of Winnipeg for seven years. We, we planted a church there. You can flip to the next slide. Uh, we, we planted a church there that um, was in a pretty rough part of town. We'd have people that would visit and uh, their relatives, when they found out where they needed to be dropped off, sometimes they wouldn't even stop the car. Like, I'm not kidding. It'd be like just keeping it running, just kind of tell us when the service is over. We'll kind of come back. We, we were in the midst of the largest to this day, the largest per capita population of glue sniffers in all of North America. That is a crazy world. We didn't know what we were doing. You know, you know that, those old Bugs Bunny cartoons and the guy walks off the cliff and he just keeps on walking and he doesn't realize he shouldn't be walking on air? And then someone says, you shouldn't be doing that. And he goes, ah, poo! And he like, like, that was kind of our church. We were like way out in the middle of the air. We didn't know what was going on. We were just making friends, like for real. And so we went to the Salvation Army. We said, how do we deal with this thing of glue addiction? Like, this is just brutal. Most people that are sitting in our community have been sort of, they're not allowed, actually. They've been banned from every church and sort of shelter and everything in town. Like, how do, how do we even try to walk this forward? And the head of the Salvation Army, the Canadian Addictions Program at that time, this would have been uh, right around uh, 1999, 2000, somewhere in there, sat my wife Anita and I down, looked us in the eyes and said, when you figure it out, you come and tell us because we have no idea what to do. I mean, it's a crazy journey. There's a guy, he's now actually passed on, stepped across that veil into the next sort of phase of, of his life. But he had this, he was known as One Wing Wayne. And he had this hook, like the most obnoxious hook you could ever imagine. Because he was so high one day, he'd fallen asleep, and his arm had just draped over the railroad tracks. And he was completely just bashed out of his brain. He's just laying there with his arm over the thing, and the train comes by. And I mean just absolute clean cut, just like, phew. And his arm is gone. So he's got this crazy hook. 
One wing, wing. Clack, 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 clack. Most obnoxious. Like you, sorry about that. You're like, you're like, you know, like grab your shirt. He like pull on your pants. He was, and he was just like rude. I, it's really, really hard to push me to a place of frustration. But Wayne was the one person that could just totally get under me. I got, I got a million Wayne stories. And he's driving me nuts. But I, I, I just keep coming back to the abundant life of Jesus. And I'm trying to draw on this place. I'm like, how do I care for this guy? How do I love this guy? I can't stand this guy. And there's this one day, uh, we had a ministry center. We took, all, we took over an old abandoned bank. There was a royal bank that was there that finally booked it out of town because uh, they'd been robbed like one too many times. It was like the, and so we got a really cheap uh, but it was, uh, you know, we paid a price for that, but it was, it was where we wanted to be. And we had this ministry center and where we would gather, because our church began to, to grow and have some sort of a, a numerical footprint as well as a missional footprint in our neighborhood and in our city. And so we had to meet in this big, massive old church building. And I would start out at the ministry center on a Sunday and I would just most times when it wasn't like a minus bajillion below zero, I would, you know, I, I would dare to like walk and it's in the summer and I'm walking over to this thing and it's kind of like one of these weird things. I'm walking down the sidewalk and there's a cross street up ahead of me and I knew this house had, had been there but I, I'd never really had any encounter with anybody and there was, a, there was a crack house on this one corner and it was uh, under the jurisdiction of what's known as the Indian Posse, one of the largest uh, drug gangs in, in Canada and uh, they're up on this one corner and I'm walking along and they're out on their porch and they're kind of doing whatever and I'm kind of like okay man this is like a little awkward you know I'll try to get through this trying to get through the malay like I'm on my way to church you know and then all of a sudden out of the corner of my eye I see one wing Wayne coming down the sidewalk so I'm coming this way Wayne's coming this way and the house is on the corner it's clack 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 He's kind of, you know, stumbling along. I don't know if you've ever seen anybody under the influence of sniff. And I'm thinking, wow, this is weird. So I'm walking closer. and I can see this gang is getting more and more agitated. Like, I mean, really agitated. It's like a, you know, like a hive of bees that just starts buzzing. I'm like, oh boy, this just doesn't look very good. And they said something so strange. One of the guys leans over the rail. It's almost like out of the Bible or something. I've, honestly, I've told this story so many times, but I, can't, I still can't get my head around this. And they, they've been taunting Wayne. If you understand anything about the hierarchy of drug addiction, the glue sniffing is the poor man's drug. You'll admit everything before you admit you're a glue sniffer because you're... You're just off the bottom rung. I mean, all the other addicts don't want to hang out with glue addicts because it just does crazy stuff to your head. It's like meth, but worse, honestly. And so I'm walking, and they're like, hey, sniffer, you know, they're doing all this. And I'm walking along, and this certainly wasn't anything. I'm trusting this was the abundant life of Jesus in me because I had, I had nothing within myself. To have happen what happened. But I found myself just saying, and I yelled, I just went, hey! You know that horrible feeling when everything's going so wrong and it all goes into slow motion? <laughs> it's like all of a sudden I'm like, oh, crap. It's like, you know, like this. And all the gang guys are like, they're like turning like this, you know. Wayne's like, clack, clack. 
clack, clack, you know, kind of looking over. And here's the thing this guy said. I can't ever get my head around this. One gang guy looks at me and goes, what do you have to do with him? And I didn't know. Like, I'm like terrified. I'm like, I, I've, but, you know, as terrified as I am, I'm like, oh no, I read this story once. Kind of, you know, the story I'm going to about Jesus and kind of like this whole Samaritan thing. Can we just cut that out of the Bible, please, Lord? Like, like just for now. Like, can I just not be a Christian for five minutes and then I'll get through this and I'll join up again. Like once I'm on the other side of the, of the intersection. But I couldn't go there. What do you have to do with him? And it was the strangest thing. The strangest thing. I heard these words coming out of my mouth. He's my friend. Now, full disclosure, sort of the, the poignancy of that moment didn't last very long. <laughs> but in the heat of that exchange, I, I, you know what? I mean, I'm telling you, I actually think I could have died for him. Like, I didn't know where this thing was going to play out, but something was transformative in that moment. Now, did Wayne become my best friend? Absolutely not. <laughs> you know, do we hang out all the time from that moment on? No. But something shifted more in me than, I mean, Wayne was just like flabbergasted. And then, of course, he's running as fast as he can. Didn't see, never came to church that Sunday. I mean, he just took off. I mean, his, he was in danger. Like, he was in danger. He's my friend. I've thought about this so much. Maybe Jesus is right. Can people that you think you would never be able to walk in relationship with, can, can something happen? I don't think it takes a rocket scientist to know fear is gripping the world right now, isn't it? It's gripping our politicians, it's gripping our policies, it's gripping our understandings of community. It's Get this quote from a man named N.T. Wright. It's kind of crazy. He's, uh, that's the, it's the next slide. He's thinking about this text. And he comes to this conclusion in the middle of it. Ne next slide, please. Now, would your brain go here as you're thinking about this text? This is someone who's given a lot of time and thought to Greek language. I don't know if you know Tom Wright, uh, N.T. Wright in England. He's premier Anglican theologian and scholar. He's influenced a lot of people in the world today. In regards to this verse that we just read, no greater love has anyone than this, than he lay down his life for a friend. This is the reflection of N.T. Wright. Here the talk is of love, not war. Now you can apply that across the spectrum, right? Big picture war, little picture war, war in the playground, war in the nations. In a world of danger and wickedness, it won't do for everyone to pretend there are no hard decisions to be made. Remember this thing of no secrets? 
There must be process. There must be dialogue. There must be interaction. The church has a long ways to go in learning this reality. But precisely one of the great dangers and great wickednesses of the world is the very common belief that fighting is a fine thing. That war is a useful way of settling disputes. And that, to put it crudely, might is right. No greater love has anyone than this. Then they lay down their life for a friend. One of the reasons human civilization has struggled to promote justice is the recognitions that things aren't that easy. And justice, at its best, knows that it has to clear the decks and leave the world open for people to love one another. I know it's a little bit to chew on on a Sunday morning, but I think it's helpful. See, at the heart of justice, what, what you're really saying, when, you're, when you want to step towards being a safe community, you want to be a just community. Justice and righteousness are absolutely interchangeable terms in the biblical text, both in the Hebrew and the Greek. There is no holiness without social justice. There is no justice without a righteous people, which isn't rules and regulations. It's what Jesus is describing. It's the ability to be friends where hierarchy is obliterated, obligation is obliterated, secrets are obliterated, and we walk on equal ground, whether it's prodigals returning home, people coming to the faith for the first time, or people that we pour everything we have into and maybe they will never, never, declare the name of Jesus. This space where the decks are cleared at the heart of injustice is the abuse of power. And one of the things that pulls the linchpin out of the manipulation and leveraging of power is the posture of becoming a friend. So we're right at the end here. This is a few thoughts. When the posture of friendship has filled a community, projects become people. Now the tricky thing is, that slows everything way down. Power becomes service. Giving becomes Sharing, totally different concepts. Most of the North American church is built on the concept of giving. The invitation of the Holy Spirit and the reflection of the biblical text, particularly in the book of Acts and the writing of the epistles, is that the community of faith learned to share. And sharing is way harder than giving. If I give someone who needs a car a car, I feel really good, and that could be a noble thing, and the Lord might have led you to do it. But you try sharing your car with another person. It's different, isn't it? Giving will never bring you to a place of safe community. Sharing is the compass setter. And I, honestly, for me, it's going to take me my whole life to get there. And there's all kinds of ways you can do this wrong and mess it up, and, and then it just turns into obligation and all sorts of things. But it's this posture. And here's something very powerful. And 
a way big topic, but enemies become friends. Enemies become people. Enemies actually become human beings. There's no sustainable justice without community. It's not a program. It's not a quick fix thing. It's not... We need each other to walk this thing out. And the posture of friendship is the glue for a safe and passionate faith community. That's just what I'd like to present to you today because this is what you care about. And I, I think I care about it too. I know I care about it. And I'm really happy to be here to find some friends in Kelowna that are thinking the same way. This is like pretty cool. So what do I need to surrender to make space for friendship in my life? Just think about that, just for a minute. Now, friendship as Jesus defines it. Oh, I don't got any time in my schedule for more friends. Are you kidding? I can barely get together. You know, it's like so funny. And I say this with all... Uh, hopefully graciousness because this is my home and I've been here now again uh, for over three years but it was the funniest thing was moving from LA we lived in urban Los Angeles through the three counties Orange County LA County and uh, 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 um, well the desert kind of I've lost the third or Orange County did I say Orange County Orange County LA County and Riverside it, that those three counties is 17 million people we lived there for 11 years. Loved it. We came to Kelowna. It was like crazy because I'm driving everywhere and I'm like cutting people off and I'm like whatever. And I'm like, there's no way I can get to this appointment in six minutes. And I'd get there in five. And I'd be like, no, this is like impossible. But every person we would meet, we'd try to get together with and they'd say to us, we're too busy. And I go, wait a minute. I used to drive... 45 minutes for an ice cream cone, and I thought that was around the corner. <laughs> what do I need to surrender to make space in my life for friendship? Especially those that I'm uncomfortable with. This is sort of where the text takes us, right? Again, you sort this out with Jesus, and there's no way to pull this off without drawing on the abundant life of Christ. Don't even give this a shot without Jesus or you'll end up in a religious haze that'll just tank everything. You'll be a really mean, grouchy person. Probably way better, you'll be way nicer without Jesus just kind of living than trying to do this stuff. You know what I mean? It's just an invitation. I'm... Just think about that. And it's not, not big things. We're not talking about anything radical. It's just what does it look like to step towards? What does surrender look like for me? What's in the pace of my life and the rhythm of my life, the moving in and out of this space, uh, my engagement as I see the poor and I see the marginalized. You know, we've got some people in the room here that have taken a series. They just pooled all their resource together and invited a Syrian family to just come right in and got them out. And it's like, what, what's it look like? Just, and again, 
one family, if that's what Jesus is saying, that's, it's, it's not statistics. It's not, pro, this is people, not programs. Who do you see and what do you have? And where will God be drawing you into friendship that you just, that's the least place you would expect it. Could there be something of the abundance of Jesus in you that could get you there and actually make a difference for someone else? Again, it doesn't have to be a refugee. It could just be that obnoxious dude across the cubicle at work. How do I need to listen? And who do I need to listen more intently to to make space for friendship in my life? It's a very simple principle, but it's sort of the classic thing. You can be totally dissed out on somebody and, you know, whatever, or have a concept or a stereotype of a people group or, you know, or a whatever, and then you hear their story, what happens? Something subtly begins to shift. Again, it doesn't mean you'll be best friends. It might not even mean you even walk in relationship, but something changes. Who do I need to listen to more? When I'm watching the news, when I'm hearing, you know, Justin Trudeau or Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump, you know, spouting off through the political platforms, I need to just slow down. Who, who, what, what am I, what, who should I be listening to in the middle of all this opinions and policies and this and that? Who, who do I need to be listening to and just hearing more? Maybe the person that, you know, you've rubbed shoulders with in, in the house here for the last three, four years. And there's always been a little twinge, but... I don't even really know their story at all. Is there someone like that? Or is there opinions that you have of a people group or people that if you just took the time to listen a bit more, it might change some things? And then, of course, how do we respond, right? And the beautiful thing of this, and let's just bring it full circle, Jesus doesn't call you servants. There's no secret thing to this. You can learn, you can grow, you can mature. There's no like management course or some book you got to go to or somebody that you need to lay hands on you or anybody give you insight or whatever. Just go to the abundance of Jesus and who you are and just step by step walk this thing out. He's not calling you into a hierarchy of need now and oh, I'm more awesome because I'm now caring for people and other people just aren't paying attention. It's just let's let all that stuff slide and just in simplicity come to Jesus, right? Does that make sense? I'm done. <laughs> Lord, we thank you for jacking up our heads and squeezing our hearts just a little bit tighter. We are better together. We really are, Lord. Help us figure out the next steps of what that looks like.
to love each other as you loved us, to find this greater love that no one has and lay down our lives, to be friends, to break the back of just service and obligation, but to walk with you into a place of honesty and transparency and no secrets and just, just learn from you and learn from each other, Lord. So teach us.